reflecting how we are. Just the myriad, countless, compelling states, enthusiasm. I'll give my life, what the heck, my future lives to the Dharma, to awakening, from the exalted states to the, oh, goodness. Can I stand another minute? So many different compelling states when there's not a lot not many distractions. Uh, two days and two nights can seem like uh, two eternities. But noticing the mystery of how states keep dissolving. There was that sense of reality of the opening night Saturday night, the beginning of the retreat. That's a memory. Now, Monday night. As a dear friend of ours who who died a a few years ago, wonderful teacher, Godwin Samararatana, from uh, Sri Lanka. As he used to say, we should give ourselves some pluses for still being here. It can be a struggle, and I know uh, many of us have pondered, even seriously, escaping for good reasons. It's not easy, though ideally it might seem like, oh yeah, going and sitting on your butt for a few days while the world is burning, yeah. As our teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, yeah, it's like walking into the eye of a hurricane because we're eyeball to eyeball with our karma, eyeball to eyeball with all the tendencies, all the habits of liking and disliking. All right coming up to face us because we have so few distractions and because we're allowing ourselves to listen and illumine the nature of our experience. That's not easy. It's a struggle. can be a struggle. But this is a suffering that, at least according to the wise ones, and, and I encourage us to contemplate that, This is a struggle that is is not a wasted one. It's suffering that can lead to the ending of suffering, suffering that's not exploiting anyone. It's a struggle that can help reveal to us the nature of our body, the nature of our mind, the nature of this mysterious existence. And who said it was going to be easy? We have a, a master who taught us about uh, 
the Kuan Yin teachings, he used to say, if someone tells you they've got a shortcut to make it really easy, you should just go running the other way. It's not easy. Our teacher, the Buddha himself, had a, had a struggle, and his journey, in a way, is, is, a, is an archetypal one. It's one that we can relate to. He, he grew up in a, in a palace, not that we all have grown up in palaces. But in our modern world, many of us do have uh, certain quite extraordinary conveniences. Where we can push a button and change the channel. <laughs> Increase the temperature, lower the temperature. But the Buddha grew up, uh, and he told his disciples he grew up in in refinement. He had three places to live. In the hot season, he had a place to live. In the cold season, he had a place to live. In the rainy season, he had a place to live. His uh, parents, his father, uh, what wanted him, his mother died when he was very young. But uh, the father, the sort of chief or a king, wanted him to be really comfortable. So he had the finest silks, finest food, his attendants. He had beautiful female attendants, keep him happy. But at a certain point in his life, when he was about uh, 35, he he had a, a turning uh, there was a certain recognition of, uh, of suffering. When he was 29, sorry, when he was 29, he realized, he, he saw himself uh, one day recoiling to an old person, someone who was creaking. We can relate to that, some of us. Someone whose skin was wrinkled, blotched. Teeth were getting a bit loose. Walking with groans, difficulty. He he, he saw himself uh, turn away. He caught himself. What am I turning away from? It's like at that point, when, when he was 29, he, he realized, hey, this aging process, I'm subject to that. This is what I call my body's subject to that. I'm subject to aging. It's not fitting for me to be disgusted by what, I, what I'm subject to. And he said the, the vanity of youth left him. Or another way he put it, the typical person's intoxication with youth left him. When he realized, hey, you know, this, even though at the time he was healthy, young, 
vibrant. <coughs> he had that penetration into his heart that, you know, old age is, is what is natural. And, and, and similar, similarly, at, in that phase of his life, he saw himself recoiling when he saw someone sick, vomiting, someone with diarrhea, kind of covered in their own excrement, vomit, in pain. So what, what one part of him turned, recoiled, Again, he called himself, what, what's going on here? What, what am I turning away from? What's that about? Being disgusted by that. Oh no, that's not, that's over there. There was that penetration into his heart that, hey, wait, this, this too, this being, this body is subject to sickness. I'm not beyond that. And he said the vanity of health left him, or the typical person's intoxication with health. When we're intoxicated with youth or intoxicated with health, we we just assume, yes, this is mine, this is me. He saw that. That was sobering, powerful. I am subject to aging. I am subject to sickness. And he also, in this period, encountered a corpse. It's not necessarily that he never saw one, but really, again, called himself being, you know, I don't want to see that, turning away from that. But being interested, catching that, recoiling that disgust, and then reflecting, being interested in reflecting, hey, what's this about? I too, I'm subject. This body is not beyond dying. That penetrated his heart. He called these the heavenly messengers. It, they, rather than something to get away from, he realized there was a message, powerful message that touched him when he was 29. And he said, the vanity of life left me. This typical person's intoxication with life, when we just assume, yes, me, mine. And that message, that being touched, uh, changed the, 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 even though he had all these pleasures, these, you know, nice music, nice sounds, nice tastes a certain weariness came when he realized, hey, but there's old age sickness and death coming in here. The question arose, is there something that doesn't age? Is there something that doesn't sicken? Is there something that doesn't die? Question. And the, his, his old pleasures, which it's not that they were bad, but the excitement of the sights and the sounds and the music and the sensations, they were informed by the recognition that they kept ending. 
that kept eluding him, a certain weariness came, which led to a search, that led to his search, to his leaving home. And we can relate to that. We've left home in a search. And on some level, we've experienced that it, though we might, oh, I oh, enjoy a cappuccino and a, and a movie and a, a nice conversation. All these are wonderful things, but there's something in us that at some point when we realize it's not just the next one, the next one, the next one, there's some realization of that, that of the weariness of always trying to get there that weariness, that nibbidah, or the Buddha used, is actually not a sickness. It's a spiritual maturity, uh, the beginning of a great reversal, the beginning of the recognition that we're looking in the wrong place for real security, real happiness, because everything keeps aging, keeps sickening, keeps dying. Naturally, the the lovely dawn naturally fades. That great reversal, that turning, beginning to turn from the focus outward to begin to, to ask deeper questions. Hey, what's going on here? The Buddha went in search. He'd, he'd had the opportunity to have all the nice pleasures and realize that just that in and of itself still leads to stress. It's not just the answer to peace, to happiness. He studied with the yogis of the time. He met a teacher called uh, Alara Kalama, and, and uh, who, who he'd learned great meditative techniques, but that vaulted him into very refined places. It's like, well, if the world is aging, sickening, and dying, he learned from this first teacher how to go to what's called the sphere of nothingness. Go into a state where you don't feel the body at all. It's like an Olympic meditator state. Go to a very refined state. He was good at it. He learned quickly. He got so good at it that the teacher said, hey, you know what I know. I know what you know. Why don't you leave the order with me? He was good. And then the Buddha was grateful for being invited, but he he came down. He vaulted himself, came down. He knew this, this too ends, this state. That's not what I'm looking for. He went to another teacher called Uddhaka Ramaputta, who, who taught him an even more refined state, even more refined than nothingness. He learned to go to a place of neither perception nor non-perception. Very refined, formless realm. Again, no body, no physical body around at all. But he came down. That teacher even said, hey, you know what I know, I know what you know. Hey, why don't you take over? You can even have the order. The Buddha wasn't, the young prince, the seeker wasn't satisfied. 
I don't know what his thinking was, but maybe he thought, well, the pull of the world, the pull of form keeps pulling me back. Maybe I just need to cut this link with physicality. This idea maybe the form is, is the bad thing. So then he started uh, practicing asceticism, torturing himself to crush that attraction to pleasure. So he starved himself and went through that whole period, eating less and less and less, just eating a handful of beans, a handful of rice. Got very, very thin. Then he even decided breathing was luxurious. Oh, really? He, he probably, the guy was fearless. He thought, let me, you know, I'm a ta- attached to life, am I? Okay. So he stopped breathing, plugged up his ears, plugged up his eyes, plugged up his nostrils, and just noticed, ah, when I stopped breathing. I mean, look, if you even stop breathing for, like, I'm not breathing now. Who needs breathing? I'm independent. Yeah, I'm an American. I don't need anybody, and I don't need to breathe either. <laughs> but, hey, what's this uncomfortable feeling? Tanisha, are you doing something? Oh, I feel very uncomfortable. Oh. Then when you breathe in, whew, flush. Well, the Buddha took that feeling and kept hanging in there till he was almost dead. He, he tracked the burning, slicing pains that went through his head and his belly. He was determined, but he got so weak that when he urinated, he fell on his face. When he scratched his belly, he felt his backbone. And he knew that there was no more effort he could make. But he wasn't peaceful. He was wound up like a still spring. I mean, he had a certain amount of mindfulness. He was right there. But he was crushing the body. And so he asked the question, might there be another way? He asked himself the question, might there be another way? Let that question go into silence. And a memory. When he asked the question, the mind brought up a childhood memory. He remembered when he was young, And his father, the chief, the king, there was some sort of plowing festival, harvest festival, something like that. He didn't go into big details, but I suppose there's festivities, maybe speeches, music, dancing, you know, festival sort of thing, activity. And he remembered as a child... And he didn't say that he threw rocks at it and shouted, oh, you're bad, and... But he remembered as a child that he just withdrew. He left all the activity over there and withdrew to the side to sit under the shade of a rose apple tree. He remembered that. And he remembered as a child, with the innocence of a child, the openness, the non judgmental nature of a child, he remembered naturally letting his attention withdraw and receive his body and the breathing. Just with the innocence of a child, he was with the breathing. And he remembered entering a very peaceful state. Just being with the body, 
breathing. And the insight arose, ah, that's the way. But the thought occurred to him, hey, I'm too weak. I'm too weak to do that now. I need some food. And just at that point, according to the story, a, uh, a young maiden who was uh, wanting to make an offering had made some kind of rich rice pudding, wanted to make an offering and noticed this gaunt ascetic. He looked like he needed something, but his eyes were bright, noticed this gaunt ascetic and made, made an offering. And having realized he needed nourishment, he, uh, Gotama, the bodhisattva, the seeker, accepted it, received it and ate it. He had some attendants who were practicing uh, friends from the palace days who had left the palace with him and were practicing asceticism when they saw him receiving this offering from a beautiful young maiden and he accepted it from her hands, can you believe that? And ate it. They just saw, oh man, he's lost it. He's gone down the bad track. But the young prince, so they abandoned him. Never mind. He received that and was nourished. Now, Tanisra likes to say, and others do, that that was an important turning point of opening to the feminine, opening to form. When he had realized old age, sickness, and death and had left home in search, there was a kind of imagination that nibbana, that peace, that true happiness is somehow divorced from form. It's, that's the bad stuff. Go up to some heaven, formless realm. And then when he kept coming down, then you have to crush form, inflict great pain, sever that attachment. That when he accepted the food, when he had the childhood memory, he realized he'd been going from one extreme to the other, from the extreme of grasping at pleasure to the extreme of rejecting, of, of pain. He started discovering the middle. And that's what we've been practicing today. Samadhi, this, this unification of form and formless. The Buddha defined what we're doing, samadhi, this meditation, this training of, of being present, being mindful. He defined it as citta-kagata. Citta means the heart. Ekagata means the heart that's unified. Citta-kagata. The heart, it's the heart's that which knows, that which is aware, that which feels. What's the unification with the stream of our being that can think, that can intend, that can go this way, that way, discriminate? What have we been doing is letting the thoughts remind us to be here, point us to the body. Thought points us to the body. The heart then receives. So the heart that knows and thought and form 
are all right together. The Buddha said he taught samadhi first as a pleasing abiding here and now. A pleasing abiding that's not dependent on having nice sights, having nice sounds, having nice tastes. A pleasing abiding that doesn't exploit anything. A pleasing abiding that wells up from our capacity to be here, to be present to be unified, to be composed. And at first the energy which is habitually only knowing pleasure by having a nice sight, only knowing pleasure by having a nice sound, only knowing pleasure by having a nice taste, a nice touch, the mind that's seeking happiness outwardly when we practiced what the young child did in that memory. Practice viveka, practice stepping back. Practice withdrawing, just as we are here. Practice withdrawing. From the yearnings and the longings and the distress of the world, practice withdrawing and returning the attention here. Then all that energy which was refracted outward and scattered, going over here, going over there, when we turn the heart back, then if we can be patient, then all that energy that's normally going in other places starts to concentrate here. It's a little bit like the, the uh, as a child, uh, we used to, much to my parents' uh, fear sometimes, we get a magnifying glass and you, and you hold it in the sun and then you could, and if you focus the sun, wow, look at that, it burns right through the carpet. <laughs> just, the, just the light focusing, the power of that. when the Buddha had that memory as a child, that withdrawing and with the innocence of a child turning the attention inward, all that energy welled up and he experienced a beautiful, pleasant state. So then after he ate, he did that again. After he got his strength back. That's what we've been been doing with his encouragement that you use thought just to encourage us to be here, but not thought just to be thinking, 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 a thought like Bhutto or a thought like in, thought like I'm here, a thought like awake. Just enough of a thought to direct the attention. Because it's true, if, if the thought gets too loud, then the thought starts pretending like it's the reality. It's telling you stuff. The thought breath is just the name. 
but the actuality, when the thought breath just breathing points our attention, then we can be with the mysterious, ever-changing vibration, tingling, rhythm, pulsing of the actuality of the body breathing in, breathing out. So the thought, what's called vitaka, just points us there. And then vichara, that part of the heart that can receive, feel out the heat, the warmth, the tingle, the pulsing of the breathing in and out. And that vichara also adjusts. It not only fills out, but it then notices, hey, I'm trying too hard. Relax. Oh, shoulders are tense. When we feel out, we'll notice the tensions, we'll notice the strains, we'll notice the stresses, and it will allow us to adjust. So it's the feedback loop. So the thought points us to be present, and then the heart receives and adjusts. In the Buddha's later, I mean, when he was uh, encouraging his disciples how to do it, remember he was saying that we should first start with the long breath to get our attention, deep breath, in, out, relaxing. And then the short breath. Naturally, the breath will want to settle somewhere. The attention will settle somewhere. Stay firm. Maybe where it's comfortable, the nostrils the chest, the belly. And then we'll just be present and really just receive the actual sensation of the breathing there, say at the nostrils. Just enough thought to remind us to be present, but let it be quiet. Staying with that rhythm, steadying. And the simplicity of just being with the truth, the simple truth of a sensation, rather than trying to figure anything out. Just be with the simple, for example, at the nostrils, sensation of the in, the pause, the vibration, the out. Sometimes that's called the short breath because it's the vibratory breath. You're not following a whole pathway. Then the Buddha encouraged, he said, then to train ourselves to be sensitive to the whole body breathing. So we can start in one place and relax, but why he, he, he does this is so we have an abiding that's steady, but it's still more fragile when it's if it's too limited, linked to one little spot. This first part of the meditative training, Tanisra mentioned that it's the healing aspect. When we learn actually to allow the awareness to widen and little by little allow the attention to include the whole body, then the quality of our composure has more durability when we have our whole body involved. That's why the qigong is so helpful. So we're training ourselves to be 
sensitive to the whole body, being present, being mindful. If we start to get lost when we're doing the whole body, then we can uh, allow the focus to narrow, be with a, a sharper sensation, say at the nostrils or in a smaller part of the body, get steady again, but then to keep training ourselves to, from time to time, make sure that we're relaxing. so that those sensations uh, mingle with the rest of the body. The Buddha described it uh, like this, this uh, training in, in the first level of calm. There's the case where a monk secluded, or a seeker like us, secluded from sensuality, meaning we're, we're not out there just seeking the sights, the sounds. We've retreated. Secluded from unskillful qualities, enters and remains in this first level of peace. Rapture and pleasure, born of this withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought, what I've called vitaka, and evaluation, what I've called that receptive mind. The seeker permeates, pervades, suffuses, and fills this very body with rapture and pleasure born of this withdrawal. There is nothing of the entire body that is unpervaded by this rapture and pleasure born of this seclusion, this withdrawal. And then he gives an image which can uh, perhaps help us in our practice over the next few days. Just as a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin, knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even though, even so, the seeker, the, the monk or nun, permeates this very body with this rapture and pleasure born of this seclusion, this withdrawing ourselves from seeking outwardly. There is nothing of the entire body that's not pervaded by this rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Bath powder, like in the old days, I guess, they would, you know, didn't just have hot water on a tap. You'd go somewhere to take a bath, somewhere where they would heat the water for you. They'd have some kind of crystals or powder, maybe with different oils in it. Then the sprinkling, sprinkling of, aware, of water into that, and the bathman or the bathman's apprentice would knead the water into the powder. There'd be little gritty bits but as one keeps sprinkling, it, it then becomes something different. It starts permeating, suffusing, so that it becomes something different, something fragrant, 
something. There's a transformation that happens. The bath powder is like the body. Shoulders over here, elbows down there, head's too hot, feet can't really feel them. Different pieces. What's the water sprinkling? That's the moments of awareness. That's awareness of this sensation, awareness of that sensation. What are the hands that are massaging in the moisture? That's the rhythm of the breathing, the in and the out, the in and the out. What's that brass, lovely brass bowl, this golden brass bowl? What's the container is our awareness? It's our awareness, and we have our body, which is like the bits of the powder that seems to be broken into bits. But we've consciously brought our awareness back with the mind intending the heart, saying, being aware of an in-breath, of an out-breath. That's sprinkling water into the body. Water. The massaging of the in, the out, the rhythm. Then as we stay with the breath, say, notice the sensations. Then little by little start to widen our attention so that we notice the whole body. Then our body, we're bathing the body with awareness. The body's within awareness. Then noticing areas that are painful, that are stuck. Breathing in to those areas. Then as we breathe out, relaxing. Letting the awareness explore, permeate the body. Anywhere that's not very comfortable, breathing in there and then relaxing. So that energy that normally is going out seeking, little by little training ourselves to turn that energy back into the body. What's this rapture about? What's that about? I mean, you know, does it mean my hair has to stand on end and I've got to burst into tears? <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. The word the Buddha used is pity, P-I-T-I. And, and yes, sometimes it can be very blissful, but the seed of that, what it comes from is a container. It's learning how to savor, how to be willing to enjoy, even if you're not feeling good. To savor means to allow ourselves to receive and really taste that feeling. And many of us, when we come back to the body, it's tired because we've been pushing so hard from our life. Now, if we try to get to rapture, that's putting more tension. If we learn how to receive Put the body in that brass bowl, lovely brass bowl of awareness, and then just savor, enjoy, receive the sensation of the body. Hold it in awareness. Then little by little, the energy will well up. It'll build up. It's very important. Rather than trying to get to rapture, it's practicing learning to be interested in and enjoy the sensation. And another quality that really helps is relaxing because then relaxing allows the energy little by little to fill up all the channels, to, to be at ease and relax.
when we have moments of, of doing this, there can be the mind telling us butto quietly or maybe in, out. But it's not disturbing anything. And the heart will be aware of the ripple of the in-breath through the body, the ripple of the out-breath. There'll be a quality of ease and a quality of fullness. Really raptures about being full, just enjoying a simple thing. And there'll be what the Buddha called ekagata. There'll be a sense of unity, even though there's the thought in, out. That's not disturbing the peace. It's helping us stay present. There'll be the ease, the fullness. In tranquilizing the body. It's like on the beach. Sometimes uh, when we go down from our mountain hermitage to the beach, Near Durban, in South Africa, sometimes there'll be places where people have been on the beach with uh, vehicles and things and churned it up. There'll be all sorts of tracks. But after the tide has been washing in and out, in and out, even those millions of different grains of sand, all those tracks, all those pathways will be smoothed. And you can also look at the beach where even though there's billions of particles of sand, there's a kind of unity. As we practice being simple, being patient, just with the simplicity of in, out, Relaxing, little by little, steadying the heart, little by little, gathering in the whole body. Then even though there's all these different cells, all these different energies, all these different feelings, they can start to homogenize, they can start to balance and blend. When the Buddha experienced this uh, pleasure, he thought, now does this pleasure hurt anybody? He thought, this is a pleasure that's, that's not exploiting anyone. Yes, I can get attached to it and then I'll suffer. But I don't have to get attached. It's a skillful pleasure. So even though we might not be very good at it for the rest of our life, if we even get a little more skillful, being able not to only know pleasure by getting the nice sound, getting the nice taste, getting the most interesting game, thing, circumstance. To train ourselves little by little by little for the rest of our life. To learn how to enjoy a simple pleasure of standing, sitting, walking. A pleasure that wells up from within the heart. Pleasure that doesn't harm anyone, doesn't exploit anyone. That's really helpful. And also, that uh, skill helps us be present for our life. 
Also, when the mind is more composed, it's, it, it has knowledge. It will, when it turns to something, it will be revealed. If you notice, when you're not very composed, our knowledge is just what someone's told us. It's what we've remembered. But notice, if you're really composed and you look at something, if you're really composed and look at something, the qualities of that thing just reveal itself. It's like if, you, if there's a dark room and you shine a torch in there, it reveals what's there. So that's another blessing from samadhi, this training. Knowledge about things it becomes our knowledge. And the most profound blessing from this uh, training, which we'll be looking at in the next few days, is when we have a little bit of composure. That's why we've been emphasizing it these first few days rather than trying to solve problems. We've been emphasizing, practicing being composed here, now, with the simplicity of body, breath. That when one uses some of that composure, we can then turn it to inquire into suffering, the causes of suffering. It can liberate us, liberate us from wrong views about ourselves and others. When the heart is composed, it's like a cast iron skillet that's hot. It's been heating for hours. If you drop a drop of water onto it, drop another drop of water on it, wow. It's there and it's gone. Whoa. When the heart is composed, really here, then when we look at a thought, the thought's there and it dissolves. I'm a hopeless case. I know, this is no joke. I am a hopeless case. You're not listening to me. I'm a hopeless case. Oh, maybe I'm a Buddha. Maybe I'm the best, the first enlightened. Have they noticed? Have they noticed? I'm the best, I'm the worst. We start to see these thoughts which when we don't have samadhi come in there and tell us some little bubble goes through consciousness and we're devastated. We want to kill ourselves or we want to kill somebody else. And we do. All the time. When there's samadhi, the empty, ephemeral nature of desire and aversion becomes so obvious. We see everything dissolving back into this, whatever you call it, it's just another bubble, another name. So actually, the wisdom is not actually hard. It it arises quite easy when there's some degree of composure. And the first part of the path, virtue, 
it's, it's difficult, but it's more tangible, you know, learning not to harm, not to take what doesn't belong to us. In, in a way, it's quite, not to exploit. It's tough, but it's, it's also tangible in a way it's easier. There's virtue, ethics, which give a, free us from unskillful karma, give us some degree of mindfulness, and that then leads to the middle part of the path, what we've been practicing, this meditation. And then when the heart is composed, it sees things as they are. One of the great masters of Thailand said, actually, this middle part, this meditation, it's the hard part. Actually, the virtue, it's challenging. That training, in a way, is more tangible, it's easier. The wisdom, that which liberates us, in a way, happens naturally. He, he said it's like building a bridge across a river, fast-flowing river, that has three pylons. The pylon on this shore in the shallow water is like virtue. It's not that hard to sink that pylon in the, the water near the bank. It's not moving too fast, not too deep. The pylon on the other shore, the wisdom, is like an easier one too. It's not too deep, not too fast. But the middle pylon through the fast-flowing current, that's hard. Now, what's that fast-flowing current? All our desires, our tendencies, our aversion, our sleepiness, our sense of what am I doing here, our yearning to get there sounds so nice, being peaceful. All that moving stuff. And in the midst of that, cultivating that, that pylon of stability, of composure, that's not easy. It's tough. being very kind and patient with ourselves, and, and, and rather than thinking we have to do it all in one go, for the rest of our life, if we can get a little more skilled at that. Remember the tools. Don't hate thought. It's moderating thought. It's learning to let thought be a direct our attention. Guide us back. Receive. And then pity, that rapture, that's too strong a word. Remember, we need to learn how to then be filled with, to savor, to to enjoy even the uncomfortable feelings. Learn how to welcome that. That's why kindness is so helpful, to welcome those feelings. That gives us the container so the energy little by little builds up. And remembering to relax. The more we try to get there, that constricts the the channels. Relax. Little by little, allow our samadhi to little by little start to explore, bringing your whole body in. From time to time, let the attention include the whole body. And if we have been, well, it's nice, uh, Kitty Sarah, you're talking about rapture. You know, I've been having unmitigated, uninterrupted hell. All is not lost. 
these uh, we'll be looking at these hindrances, these obstructions that come are, are again just things to teach us. If we're not conscious of them, they, they become a problem. But if we're conscious of them, then, then they teach us. Wanting and not wanting, wanting something else, not wanting what's here, all that keeps us from going deep into the moment. So yes, we can't just snap our fingers and get rid of those. But we can little by little get to know them, and little by little get a feeling for the fever of always wanting to get somewhere else. The fever of thinking it's no good here unless I get rid of that. So little by little we can encourage ourselves. Just, it's okay to be here. It's okay to be with this. Remembering, well, the Buddha taught that this, we get good at this when we learn how to bear things. It's not a question of just getting everything just perfect. The Buddha said those who can't bear sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches can't do this. So it's not just getting it all perfect. It's learning how to be patient with the sensations, with the sights, with the sounds, with kindness, and little by little encouraging ourselves to be present. And so even though you might not feel like you've uh, gotten anywhere, you have a lot more composure than you think you do. We don't have to have great samadhi to still be able to, in the next coming days, start doing some inquiry work. The good news is our, our teacher Ajahn Chah said, even if you have enough samadhi to read a book, then you have enough samadhi to notice where you're clinging and to be able to let go and free yourself. Why didn't you tell us that at the beginning, Kitty Sorrow? And they will be banging our head on this practice. Because yes, I mean, yes, enough to read a book, but any that we've cultivated by spending a few days just being present, just being steady, all that will help us. Not just be mesmerized by our thoughts. All that will help us really be present. All that will help this whole world so that we're not just consumers that are going to eat up all the resources of the world. All this practice will help us be beings that can learn in some measure to access a peace that doesn't harm anyone. That's blameless, that's simple. And we all have the capacity to, with whatever measure of composure we have, to notice that every sight, every sound, every thought, every opinion keeps appearing and dissolving, appearing and dissolving. And even though our habit is to believe those bubbles that says, I'm, I'm the great one, I'm the terrible one, 
we have the capacity to start to notice the silence around the sounds. The space that every thought dissolves back into. We have the capacity to reconnect with this ever-present, ever-shining, ever-pure ground of our being. It's always here and now. So take heart. Just as the Buddha, following his childhood memory, grew calm and then awakened, freed himself from birth and death, he saw that that's all of our destiny. All of us here, that's our destiny to find our way home because that's our true nature. So I offer these uh, thoughts for us to reflect on this evening.